Logocentrifugal Podcast. I'm Chance Lunsford. I'm also Logocentrifugal. Maybe you're also Logocentrifugal. While you're trying to figure out how to say it and what it means, let me introduce today's esteemed guest. I have with me Dr. Philip Ovedia. Uh, and this is a man that I ran into through uh, different avenues of being able to connect with uh, professional guys with a wide skill range or breadth of experience. And uh, one very interesting thing about the good doctor here is that uh, he's a cardiothoracic surgeon and is also uh, a proponent of the carnivore diet. That was kind of um, the premise under which we started talking about maybe bringing you on here. And uh, obviously there's a whole rich history of life that's led you up to wanting to talk about those things. And um, I think in this world, a lot of times there are people who are advocates or opponents who uh, don't have the sort of um, medical background and, and experience and education in the same way that you do, who are still advocating for uh, what many people view as an extreme diet. And so I was really interested to have you on. And why don't you fill in the blanks a little bit more after that rambling introduction about who you are and what you do, and we can we can chop it up. Thanks, Chance. That sounds good. I uh, just want to say I've been a fan of the podcast for quite a while now. Um, I was trying to figure out how I first came across you, and I think it was when you had Sean Baker on. Uh, and then I uh, really liked your style and, and, you know, just the wide range of topics you cover. So been a fan for a while. And then, as you said, we kind of stumbled across each other out there in the digital space. And uh, uh, so excited, excited to come uh, speak to you and speak to your audience. Um, so uh, my background, uh, you know, I, I uh, went to uh, medical school uh in uh, philadelphia and uh then i went on to do a, a surgical residency uh in new jersey and then a cardiac surgical residency in boston uh at tufts and um i finished up my training uh oh it's about 15 years ago now uh time certainly flies and uh just been kind of you know going around as as uh, what i would say is sort of a pretty standard uh you know heart surgeon uh, doing a lot of uh, lot of operations on people with uh, with uh, coronary artery disease and blockages in the arteries of their heart, and uh, you know just kind of uh, always uh, uh, you know after the surgery would talk to them about diet and lifestyle and and how it affects uh, their their heart health uh, with with kind of the standard uh, you know standard mantras uh, you know eat less fat eat less move more. Uh, don't smoke, uh, those types of things. Uh, but, uh, you know, at the same time, I had been uh, kind of overweight and obese uh, for my entire life. And, uh, you know, that really, you know, got worse. Uh, college and medical school, especially, I got very overweight. Uh, and then I remember uh, one day uh, during my residency, I was, uh, you know, doing my work, making my rounds, walking around the hospital. And I got chest pains like I had never, never had, you know, I thought I was having a heart attack. Uh, so there I was, uh, you know, probably, I think I was 27 at the time, uh, you know, a doctor uh, taking care of people with, with 
heart disease and obesity and diabetes and all these things. And, and I found myself uh, overweight and probably on the verge of diabetes and, and, you know, headed towards heart disease as well. So, you know, I, I did what I was taught was the thing to do. And I said, okay, I got to eat less and I got to move more and I got to eat low fat. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I spent probably uh, a good six months, you know, tracking every calorie I ate. And uh, I, I made an effort to get to the gym every day, you know, between surgeries, I would go to the gym at the hospital and, and work out. And, uh, and I lost some weight and it worked. Uh, and then, uh, you know, over the years, the weight crept back on like it does for most people. And, uh, you know, I went through a few more cycles where I would kind of you know, buckle down and, you know, really try and diet and, and intentionally, you know, restrict what I eat. And, uh, you know, it was always, it's never easy. It's always miserable to be honest, but you know, you do it because you think that's the only way to lose weight. And I did it a few times and I would lose some weight and then I would gain back more weight. Uh, and you know, it's a story that I think everyone, uh, you know, everyone who's battled with obesity is familiar with. Uh, tried all the, you know, counting points and shakes and, you know, meal substitutes and all that stuff. So, and then, uh, you know, about five years ago, um, uh, you know, by this point, I was married to uh, two young kids. um, And, uh, you know, we had, uh, I think our youngest daughter was about one or two at the time. And uh, my wife actually had a real bad heartburn after having the children. And she had gone and seen uh, actually an acupuncture doctor who suggested to her to uh, try to go gluten free. And she came home and she tells me this. And, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, uh, you know, acupuncturist, what do they know? <laughs> you know, and why would you need to go gluten free? You know, you don't have any, uh, you don't have celiac disease, you know. Uh, there's no no medical reason for that. And uh, but, you know, I'm a supportive husband. And I said, if you want to try it, I'll try it with you. So we went gluten free. And uh, immediately I noticed how much better I felt. I mean, within a week, you know, hadn't lost any weight or anything. But, you know, I just felt better. I didn't have that afternoon energy crash. I, you know, I, I just and I you know, but, you know, it still didn't really click in at that point. I said, oh, well, this is interesting. And, you know, I guess I, you know, maybe I have a gluten sensitivity that I don't know about or something. And I just, you know, went along with that for a little while. And uh, and then I happened to uh, be at a medical conference where uh, Gary Tobbs was the uh, guest speaker. And I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's a um, He's actually an investigative journalist with a science background. Uh, at that time, he was writing for The New Yorker and had uh, done a sort of expose on the diet industry. And one of the things he kind of learned in the course of doing his research was about uh, low carb diets. Uh, and specifically at that time, he was really focused on the dangers of sugar. Uh, so he had written, you know, at that time, uh, I think his second book had just came out, uh, the case against sugar. Uh, his first Mm. book was called why we get fat. And, uh, you know, so he's talking to this, uh, conference of, of heart surgeons and, uh, you know, I'm kind of, you know, just hanging out, you know, again, kind of 
part of my mind is like, why, why am I listening to this guy? You know, this has nothing to do with heart surgery, uh, but he's a very engaging speaker. And, uh, you know, he said a few things that just clicked with me. And the, the thing that I remember most in talking about is he said, you know, look around this room and there are, there are 2000 heart surgeons in this room. And imagine you're in the back and someone pokes, you know, opens up the door and pokes their head in and says, hey, why are there so many people in this room? And you turn to him and say, well, because more people have walked in than have walked out. And he said, well, you know, that's technically true, but it doesn't explain anything. And that's basically <laughs> what the calories in calorie out model of obesity is. You know, yes, we probably end up gaining weight because we take in more energy than we burn, but it doesn't really tell us what's going on and what's causing that. And, uh, you know, I read both of his books, uh, you know, within a few days uh, of uh, hearing him talk. And, uh, you know, that was sort of my introduction to, to low carb. And one thing led to another. And over the next uh, year or two, I lost over 100 pounds, uh, have been able to keep it off and, uh, you know, really feel, uh, you know, in, in the best health of my life. Uh, and then it, you know, kind of evolved over the years from low carb to keto. Uh, and then about right around uh, 18 months ago, uh, I heard Sean Baker. And uh, on, I think, I think originally, uh, you know, his famous Joe Rogan podcast and then your podcast and a bunch of other places. And, uh, you know, talking about not eating any carbs, which is basically what carnivore is, you know, eating only animal products. And it's essentially a zero carb diet. And, you know, that that vegetables and fiber, all these things we're told are essential to the human diet are not essential to the human diet. And, uh, you know, again, initially, I said, well, that sounds a little crazy, but let me look into it some more. And uh, started doing the research and started reading, you know, there are historical accounts uh, you know, going back to the early 1900s, uh, you know, in the medical literature. And then there's just the ancestral record of, you know, this is probably how humans evolved eating, you know, primarily meat uh, and animal products and uh, made sense. And I said, well, let me, you know, let me give it a try, you know. And um, I, I, I started the carnivore diet after being low carb at that point for many years. Uh, and I, I felt even better than I did on low carb. Uh, all the inflammation uh, in my body was gone. Uh, I had had persistent uh, plantar fasciitis, you know, pain in my foot uh, that I could not get rid of. Uh, and three days on the carnivore diet, I got out of bed for the first time in years and my foot didn't hurt. And that pain has never come back again. Hmm. So, you know, things like that, you know, make me a personal believer in it. And then, you know, there's there's at this point a huge online community of people with similar stories who have solved a lot of their problems uh, with, you know, low carb and carnivore diets. Now, the flip side is, you know, the you'll hear a lot of pushback that, oh, we don't have any studies that show this work or, you know, the, the medical literature doesn't support it. And, uh, you know, uh, at some point you just kind of say, well, that that's great, but you know, here are all these people who are getting better and uh, there's gotta be something to this. And, you know, maybe the science just hasn't caught up to the experience yet. 
So, you know, that, that certainly has opened my eyes to a lot of things in medicine. Uh, and there are a lot of things that I, I kind of accepted as truth that I, I've now come to learn, you know, are, are, are not proven fact and are not truth. And, uh, you know, that, that's opened my eyes in a lot of areas of, of the world and, and uh, medicine and, you know, kind of everything that's going on around us. And uh, happy to dive into whatever, whatever you think would be interesting <laughs> from that. <laughs> There's a lot there. Yeah. Okay. So bear with me for a second. I think I just want to try to tie a few ideas together and then I'll just kick it back at you and see what you think about things. But sounds um, good. It, it seems to me to be um, the case just from, just from sort of casual inquiry and some pondering on the matter, but I have uh, seen a lot of people in the black community who seem to do a lot better on a plant-based diet than people of more Northern ancestry. And I'm not trying to get all controversial first thing or anything. I'm just, I'm thinking about this subject a lot, you know, and it would make sense. Like if you, if you picture being uh, like a, a Norse person ancestrally for hundreds, if not thousands of years, you know, many, many generations, at least Germanic tribes and then everything else. So, okay. You got, you got, long, long winters. And what are you going to store a whole bunch of vegetables? If fresh vegetables, you either got to dry vegetables or you got to have meat and preserve that in some way. Uh, Cause you know, you're not going to, you're not going to be very successful hunting during the winter a lot of times. And what are you going to store the stuff that doesn't fill you up and is hard to preserve or the other stuff by salting it and fermenting it and stuff. But so the point is if you didn't, if you didn't have that long winter, you might eat more plants ancestrally. And that might be a reason for that. But the reason I bring that up is because uh, I have, I have with my own diet experimentations, just played with a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, my, my, my real diet experiment started with reading The Warrior Diet by Uri Hoffmeckler, uh, which was sort of like, he's like the founding father of intermittent fasting. And he wrote this book and he's hypothesizing, like, why can't people, whether if you look at the maps of the ships that the Romans sailed, they went so far, so fast that we don't have enough elite athletes in the world right now to row one of them, much less the whole fleet. And even if they're lying, it seems highly unlikely. And, and people have made the arguments that, well, they were just slaves rowing the boat and they were whipping them until they died and then replacing them with fresh meat. And that might be the case. But even so, slaves were outpacing our Olympic athletes on these ships. And so why is that? And he, he postulated in the same way that they did that on the ships and their long marches that they were not eating a lot during the day, maybe just like some travel snacks or whatever, but they were just marching full armor all day. And then they would stop and feast at night. And so he started doing that. And I started doing that. And then I moved into realizing if you go so long without eating any food, you eat certain foods and they don't make you feel very good, but they make you feel really good. And you go, Oh, I should probably pay attention to that. And then I got into the low carb world too. Uh, just, uh, I think at first I was just a young man and I was thinking like, well, this seems to be like the new thing, but I need to, I need to do some research. I've always been a research oriented guy when I get into stuff and it seemed to make sense to me. Um, and then, you know, I heard, I heard Dr. Baker on Joe Rogan, just like 
you know, half the world did, I guess. And I thought about it. I'm like, huh. I'm, you know, I know that there are indigenous populations who are living like that, especially in the north, like the Inuit, stuff like this. And so I was thinking, well, makes sense. So maybe it makes sense that it would be good for some people. Um, and then I just kind of stepped back and looked and watched as people experimented with this because it really kind of it really exploded into the scene. It was surprising to watch it happen so fast, but I think a lot of people were just appealed. It was appealing to the idea, like I just have a hamburger and a steak and that's all I need to eat ever. That sounds awesome. I definitely want to do that. No vegetables, just steak and hamburgers. That's it. And salt. What about barbecue sauce? No, just, okay. Okay. But still the meat's good. <laughs> I, and I've tried it, you know, uh, and the longest I've tried is for three months. And that's sort of me experimenting with, using it as a phase in a phasic diet, like a seasonally adjusted diet. And it's just something that's appealing to me because uh, I like vegetables. I like them. I want to eat them. But I also want to feel my best. And especially in the winter, I want to feel my best. And that seems to be, it seems to work. Um, and so I guess with that sort of, uh, I'm just kind of responding to the things that you talked about. And I think that's where I want to take us to is, um, you know, you come from a from an educated background and that, but you were living this life where you're you're like going in and fixing people's chests. And then you kind of take a look at yourself and go, well, wait a minute. Um, I see a lot of chests that look like mine right here. You know, what am I supposed to do about that? There's a lot of there's a lot going on right there. And I guess I just wonder how has the ability to reconcile your body with your passion and your work? Um affected the way that you approach what you do differently now versus before when you were having such a difficulty sort of finding the path that would help you to become, you know, what you were trying to be and what you are right now. Yeah, I think uh, you, you brought up a couple of interesting things there, but uh, I think what I would focus on first is, uh, you know, how you mentioned uh, paying attention to our diet you know, and really in the end, that might be the most important thing we need to focus on. You know, we, we've lost fact, we've lost uh, the fact that, you know, diet is such a huge influence on our health. Uh, the messaging, you know, from the medical community uh, really focuses on, you know, if you have a health problem, it needs some medication to fix it. And the reality is, is that, you know, probably 90, maybe 95% of our health problems are related to the food we eat. And we have, we have just totally lost that connection between the food we eat and the health and our health. Uh, and when you go back ancestrally, you know, this is something they knew and, uh, you know, their, their diet supported their health uh, because, you know, they didn't have medications. And I know everyone says, oh, but look how much longer our lifespan is than theirs. Uh, mm -hmm. But the reality is, is that's not true. Uh, you know, the uh, when you really look at, uh, you know, kind of just mortality statistics over time, uh, if you take out, you know, infantile mortality, so people who live through childhood, uh, there really hasn't been much of an improvement after that, you know. And, and most of the improvement that has come is probably from infectious disease and being able to manage uh, trauma, uh, quite frankly. And, and, you know. that's, 
that, that doesn't even bring into account the years of morbidity um, because correct yeah. you know, even if we have added life the years of morbidity seem to have gone up so we're probably less healthy than ever if you look at that's, it from that that's angle. absolutely yeah that that's very true and i always tell people now you know focus on health span not lifespan because uh, mm -hmm. you know there are a lot of old people who uh you know are, are pretty miserable and uh you know given the option maybe uh you know wouldn't have chosen to to go down the path they went down uh and, and like i was saying you know we really got to focus on you know I, I think everyone should be able to agree on you know diet affects health and the diet we're eating currently you know whether you call it standard american but it's really now a standard worldwide diet is not supporting anyone's health uh, you know, we could argue is a vegan diet better than a carnivore diet, uh, you know, uh, you know, or but they're clearly both better than what, we're, you know, the standard diet. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, in the end, what I tell people is eat real food, eat, you know, eat whole real food and the balance within that between animal foods and plant foods. Uh, you know, maybe will vary between people. You know, I, I certainly know vegans who are 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 doing great and are healthy. Uh, the only are you sure? You know, well, you know, I, I don't know how sustainable <laughs> it is, but in the short term, when you switch from a standard American diet to a vegan diet, you're going to do better. Uh, and honestly, I went through a I, I did about three months of a vegan diet. Uh, I was miserable. But, you know, uh, I still I, I, I'm not going to say that a vegan diet is worse than a standard American diet, although I do always point out that Oreos are technically vegan. Um, and I don't think you can do a vegan diet well without supplementing. Uh, I think, you know, the data shows uh, that you can get all the essential nutrients that you need from an animal based diet. Uh, and I don't think the data shows that for vegans. Uh, but again, like I said, I think, uh, you know, we really need to first agree on let's focus on our diets, you know, our, mm. our country, our world is literally, you know, collapsing under its own weight. Obesity, uh, you know, is, is by far the greatest epidemic we have. Uh, yeah. and, uh, you know, and it, and then, you know, it's related to everything else. So, you know, when you look at the, the, the top uh, you know, killers in this country, uh, you know, they're all related to metabolic health. Uh, you know, so you have diabetes, you have heart disease, you have cancer, uh, you have obesity, uh, and, you know, all of those are relatable to metabolic health. Uh, and the only one, you know, in the top five causes of death in this country that's not directly relatable to metabolic health is, is trauma. Uh, and even that, I would argue that there's probably some, you know, some part of it, you know, people who commit suicide, a lot of psychiatric injury, a lot of psychiatric illnesses can be relatable to metabolic health and diet. Um, you know, people falling asleep at the wheel of their car because of their crap diet, you know, while they're driving home in the afternoon, you know, causes car accidents. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of the violence in our society, you know, again, ties back to mental health. And uh, I think a lot of it comes back to you know, metabolic health. And I think if we just, if we, you know, chose to focus on that, 
And then we could argue a little bit about the details. I mean, personally, like I said, my personal experience and, and uh, you know, at this point, the thousands of hours I've, I've spent reviewing studies and, and uh, listening to podcasts and, and, you know, being in the online communities, uh, you know, leads me to believe that a heavily animal-based whole food diet is probably the best way for most people to go. Uh, but you know, like you said, you do, everyone needs to experiment for themselves. You know, you, we, we're all, we are all different and we all, you know, can probably find variations on that. You know, some people like vegetables and want to include vegetables. I would say for most people, vegetables are not harmful. Uh, for some people, vegetables are harmful though. And we need to recognize that, uh, people with autoimmune conditions in particular, uh, you know, a lot of that gets triggered by, by vegetable uh, plant foods. Uh, and that's something that you're not going to hear from, you know, everyone thinks that plants and fruits and vegetables are, are some magical food that makes everyone better. And that's just not the reality of it. So I want to, I want to go back from that for a little bit and then, and then return there. But there was an interesting sort of a side road you were taking there where you were um, you were kind of talking about how uh, there's there's sort of this uh, undercurrent of opposition that seems to be running in the face of uh, something like a plant-based diet or a carnivorous diet. You know, uh, there's like a when I think about not eating meat, for example there's a visceral reaction to me that's like, nah, don't even think about that. Meat is just a part of who I am as a person. I eat meat, I feel good. Uh, and there are certain vegetables for me that have been tried and true that are, you know, I, I respond well to them. But there's also stuff. And and here's um, maybe one little thing I want to throw into the mix is I have been uh, a practitioner of the art of fasting for some time now, a few years. Uh, shorter fasts, you know, it started with intermittent fasting, but one, two, three day fast, a five day fast and some seven day fasts. And I've, I've made it a ritual at the beginning of every year. Now I do a seven day fast and it's just water and electrolytes is all I take during those seven days. And, you know, day, day, day one is all right. Day two gets pretty tricky. And day three, uh, by the end of day three, I'm good. And then I, I don't feel hunger anymore. I might feel like a call to eat and then I look at my hand or my, my, you know, my inner gesture and I go, man, uh, I don't need to do that. And, and what the crazy thing that happens though, is that you, you then all the other stuff that's calling to you, you think to yourself, I haven't eaten in five days, six days. I don't need to listen to that. And you kind of, you know, you step back and you really think about your life, but the, the way I think this ties into what we're talking about here is I have experienced something very similar coming out of a very bad diet and like drug riddled time in my life to I ate a salad and it was it was grains and feta cheese and Kalamata olives and all kinds of stuff. And it was the first real food I'd eaten in months, really, besides like rice with with stolen hot sauce packets from Del Taco. And when I ate it, I could just feel the life coursing back into me. And I felt like that fasting and I felt like that on very strict carnivorous diets. 
just eating meat and good meat, I have felt that way too. Um, and so the reason that I'm tying all these things together and, and sort of kicking it back to you is fasting is viewed as a very strange thing by a lot of people, especially in this, the sort of like a establishment of the medical world. Um, although I think it's a lot more accepted than it used to be. And this carnivorous style of eating is very controversial as well right now in the medical establishment. And there's this, like I said, this undercurrent of opposition, but you can, you can go online and find thousands of stories of people talking about my knee stopped hurting for the first time in years. And I can see my abs for the first time since I was in my twenties where I just, like I stopped, I stopped having irritable bowel syndrome where I, my skin cleared up where all kinds of stuff. And that doesn't mean that they're, you know, there are outliers who are going to have a lot of adverse effects and there's not a lot of people who have been carnivorous for 10 years yet. But my point is that you, you kind of have to reconcile with reality at a certain point and go, these people are doing great. Um, maybe I'm the one who made the mistake. And I, I guess I just wonder why you suppose uh, the, the turnaround time in an establishment like medicine um, maybe takes so long on certain ideas and um Maybe what forces contribute to that and what can be done to counter it or, or if you can counter it in any meaningful way. Yeah. So, you know, the first thing uh, I would say is, you know, I've had the same experience with fasting uh, and, and, you know, I, I came from a, a, a similar background where, you know, so literally, um, you know, when I would be in my training and I would know that I was heading into a, you know, long surgery, a, eight, 10, you know, sometimes even 12 hour surgeries. And I'd be like, oh man, you know, my, my thoughts would be centered around what am I going to eat? You know, hey, you know, what, what do I eat beforehand? You know, am I going to be able to, you know, maybe take a quick break in the middle to eat again? And, you know, and, uh, you know, if you had told me I had to go, you know, eight or 10 hours without eating, you know, it sounds crazy. But then you, when you sit down and you think about it, you're like, well, but we sleep, you know, eight to 10 hours every night, you know, we don't eat and we're just fine. Uh, you know, and yeah, you wake up a little hungry, but you're not famished. But then, uh, you know, I, I got into fasting as well as part of my, you know, journey through all this. And, and same thing, I said, Oh, let me experiment with this. And, you know, I did, uh, you know, first, I would do a 16 hour, and then, you know, I got up to 24. And then I did a, you know, two and a three and, you know, got up to five day fast. And same thing, just, uh, you know, I, I, I usually do coffee as well as water and electrolytes, but uh, pretty much, you know, same thing you described and, and, and same experience, you know, day one, sometimes a little rough, although usually if I'm coming off carnivore, it, it's, you know, it's not rough, uh, you know, coming off a, a heavier carb diet is a little rough. Uh, and then by, you know, usually by about the 36 hour mark is when I'm like, you know, is when it really kind of kicks in and you feel pretty good. And, you know, at the end of five days, uh, I can't even say I was hungry. I was just like, oh, I guess it's, you know, I got to eat at some point and, you know, or something, you know, social comes up or whatever. And you're like, okay, I'll eat again. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I think fasting is, is, is amazing. Uh, I, again, I think it's part of our uh, ancestral history. Uh, you know, clearly, uh, you know, up until the last, you know, 200 years, uh, 
food was not a given. And there were plenty of times that, you know, either you go back to the cavemen and, you know, there were no beasts around to kill and they had a fast or even you go to our, you know, let's say our great grandparents, you know, that this, the, you know, there wasn't fresh fruit year round in the supermarket down the street, you know, it was a chore to go get food. And if the, the harvest didn't turn out well that year in the community, then they were probably doing some fasting. Uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily by choice, but uh, the, the human body had to be designed to survive that, or we never would have made it this far as a species is the bottom line. And uh, again, we've just lost sight of that because now we can go to the supermarket, you know, down the street any time of day and get, you know, food from around the world, uh, you know, or packaged and, and store it without any problems. Uh, so it, it just, you know, it, it got lost. And then when you bring it up now, everyone says, well, that's, you know, that's a crazy experiment, you know, and we would have to test this. And the reality is, is no, the crazy experiment is eating 24 uh, seven, you know, eating six meals a day is a crazy experiment. Uh, you know, eating once or twice a day is probably how we've done it for the vast majority of our history as humans. So the whole, you know, the whole narrative's got flipped. And, the, and you could say the same thing about the carnivore diet. Everyone says, well, that's a crazy, you know, you know, crazy diet and you need to do experiments to prove that it works. And the reality is, is that we have hundreds of thousands of years of history showing that it works. And what was crazy is thinking that we could start creating all these vegetable and seed oils and, uh, you know, we can make all this processed food that we can then store in a box for years and think that that's, you know, going to be good for us. That That's the crazy experiment. And when you look at the data from it, that experiment, it's failed miserably. I mean, we, you know, our health as a as a society, our health as humans has just been declining, uh, you know, clearly for the past, you know, 50 years uh, since we've had all this processed food and we've had all these, you know, recommendations, the, the government recommendations to eat the processed food. So, you know, again, how did we get here? And, uh, you know, what, what can we do to change it? Um, I think we got here because, you know, we lost sight of health. Uh, and instead, you know, the, the food industry, uh, the pharmaceutical industry uh, took over, you know, healthcare, quite honestly. Uh, the, their influence is, is just intertwined. Uh, you know, they, they the pharmaceutical industry, you know, provides direct financial support for medical schools, for education, for, you know, all the major uh, professional organizations, uh, you know, something like you look at the American Heart Association or the American Diabetes Association uh, or the American College of Surgeons, uh, you know, that, that I'm a member of, uh, you know, you go to these meetings and it's just wall to wall pharma sponsorship. And then uh, the food industry, you know, has done a similar thing, you know, kind of on the governmental level and, and in medicine as well. You know, again, the, some of the, the, the food industry are huge sponsors of the American Heart Association and the American Diabetes Association. And all those foods that you go around the supermarket that have the check mark saying, you know, they're heart healthy by the American Heart Association, uh, that's all paid for. 
you know the, the food industry pays very handsomely to get that check on the on the box and the science behind it is is very flimsy you know uh and very questionable you know and, and most of the studies that support it were funded by the same food industry and then the other thing the food industry does was did was they you know sent their lobbyists to washington and they got involved in the dietary guidelines process and um you know it, it was a give and take honestly you know because first what happened was the uh you know the the american heart association uh and in particular a scientist uh by the name of ansel keys uh you know started uh believing that you know the cholesterol we eat the saturated fat that we eat specifically uh is what causes heart disease and uh you know ansel keys uh did a number of studies that supposedly supported this hypothesis uh and it turns out now that we know that those studies were uh some of them were outright faked and others were selectively reported the results uh there was one particular study he did that uh it was probably one of the best nutritional studies ever done uh it was called the minnesota uh coronary experiment and basically they took um people who were in uh mental institutions uh so their entire diet was being fed to them you know at the at by the institution and they took uh you know half of them to receive basically most of their fat from butter and the other half received most of their fat from vegetable oils and uh you know the theory was you know vegetable oils being lower in saturated fat should lower uh cholesterol and should lower heart disease and at the end of the study they found that the group that was eating the vegetable oil had worse uh had more heart disease uh than the group that was eating the standard you know kind of butter based diet uh and they never published those results the study was buried uh it was rediscovered uh in the early 2000s uh it, i believe it was a nephew of one of the authors you know found the data hidden somewhere uh by this time ansel keys had died but the you know the other co-author on that study was still alive and they said to him why was this never published and he said well we were disappointed with the results huh. so ansel keys was able to basically you know take over control of the american heart association and push the narrative that you know saturated fat was causing heart disease uh and uh that led to the whole low fat movement and uh you know the us government went to the food industry and said you know we got to get you know we got to create lower fat food for you know everyone to eat and the and the food industry was more than happy to comply uh and uh you know started pushing the low fat diet and you know as you know you can find every product low fat and basically low fat means they've done one of two things they've uh, substituted you know vegetable and fake processed uh you know manufactured oils and then they've put in uh carbs you know sugar uh cuz if you take out the fat to make it taste good you got to add sugar basically uh and so that's how we've been you know that's been the narrative for the past 50 years and again you can see the incidence of diabetes has skyrocketed 
the incidence of heart disease has not changed meaningfully, um, despite you know both the the the, uh, the food interventions and the pharmaceutical interventions. Uh, you know, we really haven't made a meaningful impact on the incidence of heart disease and uh, obesity, diabetes, uh, you know, continue to skyrocket. So again, you know, that was the experiment. That experiment has failed, but now we're at a point where if you try and do something else and you say, well, maybe that wasn't such a great idea, it gets turned around as, well, that, you know, now you're going against the mainstream narrative. So there's this, uh, there's this like, conundrum in physics, Schrodinger's cats. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea is you're, the way it looks, the cat can be both alive and dead at the same time. But if you open the box in which the cat is poisoned, it's either alive or it's dead. So yep. it's, 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 it's like biphasic, right? Re reality resolves into its form when you are participating with it. Uh, that's that's sort of like a juvenile way of looking at it, but it's it's useful because <laughs> there's also this uh, experiment, Pottinger's cats, right? Or Pottinger's, Pottinger's, I think Pottinger's. And they just took house cats and fed them nothing but processed food and had them breed with cats that were fed nothing but processed food. And, you know, what was it? I think it was three generations deep they were sterile and could no longer procreate and had a higher incidence of birth defects and all kinds of uh, health problems that they had not had before um, or were very rare, but were occurring at high incidence. And so the reason that I point to this is also, uh, and maybe you know more about this than I do, but you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to remember reading some uh, literature recently talking about the the epigenetic effects of a prolonged fast can transfer down to the third generation. And so when you, when you sort of think about these things and you go, okay, well, if you eat nothing but garbage, just as a, as a parallel mammal study, you're out of the game in three generations, four generations. But if you, uh, you know, if you have played the game the way that nature has forced human beings to play the game for since their inception, there are, positive benefits that are passed down that make your stock hardier, more efficient, more capable of uh, dealing with prolonged periods of fasting. And then that's, and then I guess I wonder the last thing I want to tie in before I kick it back to you is there's, there's apoptosis and there's, you know, um, there's the whole cell death and cell regeneration aspect of fasting, especially prolonged fasting. Um, and I guess, the, the thing that I think ties all this stuff together is you said before that the medical community wants to have an experiment, you know, like, well, you say this, but let's go test it and make sure. And the whole response from the carnivore community and, and similar diet seems to be really strong in this way is they're like, listen, man, I am the experiment. What are you talking about? And that's what I'm that's what I'm trying to say with all of this is like you can look at reality. The Schrodinger's cat is that when you look at reality and it resolves itself a certain way, that's what reality is. And if it's if your formula doesn't match up with that, it's not reality that's wrong, it's your formula. You need to go back to the drawing board. And when you look at a bunch of people who've 
gotten jacked while they're on carnivore diet or a low carb diet, just like jacked. And they hardly even work out where they work out a shit ton and they look like Dr. Baker and they're just like, you know, shredded to the bone and, and breaking records as a, you know, a middle-aged man. And there's, there's countless stories of people correcting their health across, you know, like a smorgasbord of, of ill health stuff. You start to go, well, look, man, reality has resolved itself. You need to look up from the desk or the computer or whatever and look out at these people. Look at me. I'm right here. I lost 100 pounds, man, and I kept it off. I have the energy to keep going. You know, I feel good. Uh, my parts work better than they have in years. Thank you, missus. You know, like this, this kind of stuff is everywhere. It's like, well, okay. You guys told us that low fat was an awesome idea for years. And the food pyramid, don't even get me started on that war propaganda tool. I mean, come on, man. But so you've misled us for all this time. And now we're just looking at a world where people are the experiment. They're like, I don't need you to tell me how I can eat. I'm just going to eat how I want. And the results will speak for itself. Um, doesn't that doesn't that piss you off? Doesn't because you know you're you're representative of this community in certain ways, right? Because uh, you have you have the letters attached to your name, and you went to the same school they went to, and and you look around and you go, guys, come on, get with the program. It's not you gotta you gotta remember reality is reality, and I I, I just I guess I imagine it's frustrating when you look around and see that, and uh, what do you use? What do you do about it? How do you deal with that when somebody's around you and they're just being obtuse, you know, intentionally obtuse, but they're part of your professional community? Uh, how do you mitigate the the hazards of that, or you know, how do you sort of change minds that are not really interested in being changed in that regard? Because because they're that they're they have people's lives in their hands, you know, and you would, so I guess I just it kind of pisses me off if nothing else. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. And, you know, it is it is a struggle at this point, uh, you know, because here I am now. I'm a I'm a heart surgeon who, you know, doesn't believe that cholesterol causes heart disease and and eats a, uh, you know, carnivorous diet, you know, high in saturated fat, you know, and and so I'm totally against the grain at this point. And, you know, I, I honestly I've made made some changes. Uh, you know, in, in the way that I'm, uh, I'm practicing medicine, uh, because, uh, you know, being within the, the mainstream system became, you know, has become difficult. Uh, so, you know, a couple, couple of examples. Uh, uh, so, you know, we've known for, a, for many years after heart surgery that the better you control uh, a patient's blood sugar, the lower the risk of complications, specifically infections. So typically, you know, when, when you would, say better, do you mean um, plus plus consistently, or what do you mean by better exactly? When uh, you're lower about blood sugar. Yeah, the lower Lo you lower blood sugar. blood sugar. Yeah. And and what about uh, uh, like spikes or you know uh, like a yeah you because if someone's on would. a consistent diet, it, I just wonder the differences. Yeah, you want you want a lower spike and you want a lower, you know, uh, you know, lower kind of average uh, numbers, you know, so a, a, a continuous sugar of 80 to 90 would be ideal, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, and ironically, you know, uh, uh, 
or not ironically, but, uh, you know, uh, as a point of information, you know, for the past couple of weeks, I had been wearing a continuous glucose monitor and eating the way I eat as a carnivore. I have a straight line that's pretty much between 70 and 90, you know, the whole, the whole two weeks I had the monitor on. Um, so, so can you, can you explain to me then, do you, if you know, or can you point me to uh, a way to understand gluconeogenesis better? How does that, how does that process work? So, you know, um, uh, gluconeogenesis is uh, largely considered to be a demand uh, driven process. So if the body uh, needs energy, uh, it can break down fat uh, or protein, you know, stored fat or protein uh, to make sugar. Uh, you know, to, which then goes into the bloodstream and gets utilized for energy. Uh, as you know, I think most people in the low carb community know at this point, uh, you know, the other, one of the other energy sources that the body can use, there's actually four or five of them, but the primary ones are either sugar or ketones, which, uh, come from the breakdown of fat. So most people who are in a low are or people who are on in eating a low carb diet uh, are going to be in ketosis most of the time, uh, which means that they're primarily using ketones uh, as their fuel source. Uh, and so there isn't a lot of need for sugar uh, to be floating around in the blood. Now, the other thing we know is that sugar is toxic. Okay. Mm -hmm. So anytime your blood sugar level gets high, your body prioritizes getting the sugar out of your bloodstream because we know it is toxic. Uh, we know that it damages blood vessels. There's a very famous experience, uh, experiment that was done uh, where they put uh, catheters into the, uh, you know, femoral, the groin arteries of uh, dogs. And in one leg, they ran just uh, plain saline salt water. And in the other leg, they ran sugar water and you very quickly, you know, within a couple of days, they start to see damage to the blood vessel that's getting the sugar into it hmm. uh, continuously. So, you know, there's no doubt that sugar is toxic to the human body above a certain level. And so anytime there's too much sugar in the blood, the body does everything it can to get rid of it. Uh, and the only things it can do to get rid of it are, you know, first of all, burn it for energy if you're being active. Uh, it can put it into glycogen, which is a storage form either in the liver or in the muscle. Uh, and that gets into, you know, why being uh, more muscular is good for metabolic health because you have more glycogen that you can shove into your muscles. Uh, mm. And then the last option is to make it into fat, uh, put it into triglycerides, and then it gets stored ultimately as fat. And, you know, once the liver and the muscles get full of glycogen that that's pretty much the only choice the body has. Um, but, you know, again, so, you know, having high blood sugar, uh, it predisposes people to infection after surgery. We've known this for many years. Uh, most of the patients I operate on, you know, we end up starting insulin, uh, which is the medicine that lowers blood sugar. 
you know, in the operating room and we continue it for 24 to 48, uh, even up to 72 hours afterwards. And this is oftentimes necessary in people who are not considered diabetic, uh, you know, which is another thing to, to talk about. But um, what gets me now is, you know, so I come in the morning after surgery to see my patient. Uh, and they're, you know, by this time they're awake and they're eating and they literally have the insulin coming in the IV to lower their blood sugar. And they literally have a plate of pancakes and syrup in front of them, you know, just eating sugar. Uh, and this is heart healthy diet, you know, that, that gets ordered, you know, in the hospital, uh, because it's low fat, you know, so it's, it's pancakes and it's the diet sugar, it's the diet syrup, whatever that means. Uh, you know, so it's fake sugar instead of real sugar, I guess, which may or may not be better. Uh, and it's usually a cup of fruit and, uh, you know, and then, a you know, a glass of orange juice. Uh, and so they're literally, you know, pouring sugar into themselves while we're doing everything we can to keep their, their, you know, sugar levels low. And, uh, you know, now that my eyes are open to that, you know, it just, it just is crazy. Uh, so, you know, but it, it, it's, I I don't even have the option of, you know, I, I try to talk to my patients, you know, a lot of my patients, I, I literally meet the day before surgery because they've come in with a heart attack and, you know, they, they need an operation to get blood flow going back to their heart. So, you know, I meet them a day or two days before in the hospital. Um, you know, the ones that I do get a chance to, that aren't as um, emergent and I do get a chance to talk to them beforehand, uh, you know, I, I now try and talk to them about how, you know, it's not the fat, it's, you know, the carbs, the sugar, the fake vegetable oils that are causing, you know, the heart disease. And, you know, I'm going to do the surgery to, you know, we can't undo the damage that's there. You need the surgery to get good blood flow going to your heart again. Uh, But, you know, if we don't change your ways, you know, afterwards, or even ideally beforehand, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, we're going to end up with more problems down the line. but with that being said, it, let's say they're like, you know what, doc, I agree 100%. You know, I want to go on a carnivore diet and I'm going to start it, you know, today. And, uh, you know, we're, we're doing this. And then they come in the hospital and I don't even have the option to order them any low carb diet. Uh, you know, some hospitals uh, have a ketogenic diet on the menu, uh, for kids with epilepsy. Cause you know, that's what the ketogenic diet was designed for, uh, originally was children with epilepsy. Uh, and maybe, you know, you might be able to sneak it in that way, but you know, there, there is no option for a low carb diet in the hospital because the hospital is, you know, required to follow the federal U S dietary guidelines. Uh, if they get any federal funding, uh, which, you know, 99% of hospitals do. Uh, so they, they have to follow the guidelines. And therefore, you know, they, the bottom of the pyramid, as you know, is, is grains and, and carbs, you know. And uh, so the lowest option is, is uh, typically it's two servings of carbohydrates per meal. Uh, is kind of the lowest carb diet that you can order in a hospital these days. Hmm. So, 
there's a there's this book by a herbalist I read many years ago, probably 15 years ago, and, and in it he he made these recommendations, and he just is like this. You can use you can think of this for any herb or any supplement or anything that you take outside of food. You probably shouldn't take it for longer than three months in a row, and you should probably take at least as much time off as you are on it, and preferably twice as much. Just you probably it's it's probably a good enough time to clear out any lingering whatever left from if you were on some sort of herbal course. And I've often thought of my diet along similar terms. It's like I I like I'd like the seasonal rotation of things, and I like eating certain ways for certain phases of my exercise that are also seasonally aligned. Uh, and there is this carbohydrates are are a drug. Um, because what they do when you eat yep. them is they give you a whole bunch of energy and they cause this cascade of metabolic and hormonal effects that just they, but if you, if you don't eat carbohydrates and then you start eating carbohydrates and you're lean already, you can get, you can just like throw some meat on your bones quick, quick, just like a couple of weeks because yeah. you're sensitive to the drug, the insulin and the, and the whole cascade of stuff. Yep. And I sometimes think of carbohydrates in the same way that I would think of like taking a nootropic or, um, you know, taking a herbal supplement or, or something like this, or maybe taking something, you know, uh, isn't necessarily good for your health, but it delivers some other benefits. Like you better deride that benefit out of there and then, and then take a break so that you don't incur any long-term damage. And, uh, the thing is, uh, I, I guess I wonder maybe your thoughts on the idea of um, sort of pulsing different diets. And then, and then the one sort of non sequitur I wanted to check in there, but I think it's important to have a conversation around and maybe we could even just transition to this is uh, the controversy over cholesterol and saturated fat versus maybe like a balance of HDL to triglycerides or um, how much of this even is a good measure of anything or, or where the corollaries are or where the research is or weak or strong because, uh, you know, there's a lot of hormonal cholesterol necessary to, to keep our bodies running. And I guess I just, I wonder where you're at with all that and, uh, and how, how much pushback you see with, uh, you know, people that you interact with on a professional basis around, is it, is it starting to shift in the medical community? Because the one last thing I'll say is this, I had a doctor, I don't go to the doctor very often, but I had a guy recommended to me by my mother-in-law who's a labor and delivery nurse, and he was a cool guy. Uh, and he was uh, on a ketogenic diet. Um, he was thinking about experimenting with the carnivore diet. He was a general practitioner. He was very just professional and by the books during the, uh, you know, during the main meeting. But I just kind of got to talking to him because he looked, you know, he's pretty muscular. I'm like, well, you know, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm getting into this. And we just kind of had a talk. He's like, why don't you, you know, why don't you put your whole family on this? I'm like, well, they'll do it when they want to, but I'm not going to make them eat a certain way. I'm going to transition slowly, if anything. He's like, well, you should, because it's good for you. And I'm like, aren't you not supposed to advise me in this way? He's like, you know, I didn't. <laughs> it's like, but so, you know, I, I guess that's what I'm wondering. How, how tight are your hands? how how much yeah. hand tying is there you know and, and so i guess i'll leave you with that 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, first of all, I think you are right. You know, I think there probably is uh, a role for seasonality and variation, uh, you know, uh, in the diet. And, uh, you know, a lot of it just comes down to your goals. Uh, you know, uh, carb carbohydrates are not essential. You know, that is clear. You can survive without eating carbohydrates. So, they should be used as a tool if you have a specific goal that they might help you get to. And that, that usually has to do with, you know, either endurance type sports or, you know, uh, muscle, uh, muscle building. Uh, because again, you eat the carbs and it, you know, it's going to create that kind of glycogen, which, you know, helps with the muscle swell. It's, it's actually debatable whether it really helps you pack on more muscle or, you know, you just kind of, you get the look from that uh, muscle swell. Um, uh, I, I, think but, you have to, you know, I think you have to play it right. I think you have to play it yeah. right. Yeah, I think it has to be timed right around your exercises. I think it has to be the right type of carbs. You know, we should be clear. We're talking about, you know, clean carbs like, you know, potatoes, you know, maybe rice, although white rice probably isn't great. Uh, you know, things like that. Some, you know, some vegetables, some some fibrous vegetables. Uh, you know, and, and timed properly. And, and like you said, used as a tool. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, it is clear that carbohydrates are not an essential nutrient, so they should be used selectively. Uh, but again, that, that sounds crazy in, in the modern world uh, when you say that. Um, you know, in terms of pushback and, and requirements, uh, so, you know, again, as a heart surgeon, the guidelines, uh, it is a quality measure that I get measured on whether my patient goes home uh, after heart surgery on cholesterol medication, cholesterol lowering medication. Uh, so if I do not, if my patient is discharged from the hospital without a cholesterol lowering medication, uh, that, that ends up on a scorecard, which, you know, gets counted against me somehow. Uh, so you definitely don't tell your patients to just fill the prescription and don't worry about taking them because that would be unethical, but you probably definitely oh. don't do that. Um, I probably definitely don't do that. You're right. As I said, I need to write a prescription for the medication at the time of discharge. Um, I didn't hear anything. And, and, and honestly, you know, so if there is benefit to cholesterol lowering medication, uh, the most robust data is in patients who have had, you know, who have heart disease. So they've had a heart attack, they've had a stent, they've had bypass surgery. Uh, that is the best data supporting the use of cholesterol lowering medications. So I have a, I, have a I would say, about that. yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, no, you finish your thought, please. Sorry. Uh, well, I was going to say, I would still tell most people that that data is not nearly as good as it's made out to be. Uh, there was a lot of statistical, you know, kind of, trickery that goes into how that data gets relayed to patients uh, or how that data gets relayed to physicians, honestly, uh, you know, how that data got published. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, when you really look at the data, you know, the benefit is nowhere near what it's made out to be. And the harm is a lot more than it's made out to be as well. So, you know, that that's the balanced discussion that I then have with the patient. I, I say, listen, you know, Yes, taking this medication probably does lower your risk of another heart event a little bit. 
there is risk to taking these medications, especially long term. Um, you know, it is absolutely clear. I don't think even the most ardent uh, statin, uh, you know, supporter can argue the fact that taking statins over a long period of time increases your risk of type two diabetes. And we also isn't know that it also, has, isn't it also correlated with depression or with long term years? Uh, there's some correlation. That data is not as strong as the diabetes data, but yes, mm -hmm. uh, depression, Alzheimer's uh, have both been correlated with with statin use as well. Uh, but like I said, no one can argue the fact that taking statins for a long time, you know, more than five years or so, increases the risk of type two diabetes. And we know that type two diabetes increases your chance of heart disease. So, you know, you have to step back and say, does it really make sense? You know, is any benefit that might come from lowering your cholesterol uh, counteracted by the uh, increase in diabetes risk? Um, but, you know, and that's the discussion I have with the patient. And I say, listen, even more so, you know, we know that, um, you know, if you can increase your HDL, you know, what's called the good cholesterol, and you can lower your triglycerides, that is going to have a much greater, uh, you know, lowering of your risk of heart disease than than lowering your LDL cholesterol, the bad cholesterol that we always focus on. Uh, and the reason we focus on it is because we have medications that lower LDL cholesterol. Uh, they, they have tried, but have not been able to develop a successful medication to raise, raise the HDL or lower the triglycerides. Uh, but when you look at the data, th doing those two things, uh, you know, is much better uh, at preventing heart disease than, than lowering your LDL. Or, you know, the flip way to say that is that uh, having a high triglyceride level and a low HDL level puts you at much greater risk of developing heart disease than having a high LDL level does. Uh, and again, this is all data that's pretty clear from, you know, the large studies that's been done, the, the Framingham uh, heart study, the, you know, the, the, the nurse's health study. Uh, there, there's a number of large studies uh, that when you really look at that data, you know, there's a much greater correlation between low HDL, high triglycerides and heart disease than there is between high HDL and uh, heart disease. Hmm. And we know that, you know, most people that go on a low carb diet, you know, raise their HDL cholesterol and lower their triglycerides. Uh, it's variable what happens to their LDL, uh, full uh, you know, disclosure, uh, my LDL went through the roof on a carnivore diet. You know, it, it routinely is over 300 and, you know, the guidelines say that I should be on a maximal dose statin, uh, to lower my risk of heart disease. And I, of course, said, you know, I don't believe that the LDL, you know, my triglycerides went way down, my HDL went way up. And, uh, you know, I said, I, I don't believe I'm at risk for heart disease with this profile. Uh, so, you know, what else can we do? And there is a uh, heart scan that can be done. It's called the coronary artery calcium scan. Uh, it's a uh, quick five minute CAT scan. Uh, you don't need an IV for it. Uh, and uh, most places, 
your, your insurance won't cover it, but most places it can be done for around a hundred dollars. Uh, and I went and I got one of those scans and it directly shows whether you have any, uh, calcium, uh, you know, block disease in your heart arteries. And, uh, my CAC score was zero, meaning I have no disease in my arteries. And, uh, that has been shown, uh, in people who are around 50 years old. If you have a score of zero, your risk of developing heart disease over the next 10 years is less than, is right around 1%. I think 1.2% is the exact number. Uh, So that, you know, that's a better predictor than certainly any blood test is. Uh, And uh, so, you know, that's what I did. And that's what I talked to people about. If you're concerned about it, you know, and if all of your numbers have improved on a low carb diet, except your LDL went up and your, your, you know, family doctor or your, or your cardiologist is freaking out because your LDL is high and you're going to get heart disease. Uh, you know, I tell people go get a CAC scan and let's, let's actually see what's going on in the arteries instead of worrying about what blood tests are, you know, maybe indicating. Hmm. Yeah. That's one of the, that's one of the tricky things about diet and blood tests is, okay, well, and a lot of these numbers are going to change throughout the day. Are we testing the time of day consistently? And are we testing the yeah. time of day that would be best to test? And, you know, the other thing is little moderation or little, you know, alterations in diet can, can end up having profound immediate effects on the, on the blood test yeah. and then can peter off over time. And, and, you know, we're sort of basing these numbers in these tests around uh, these sort of guidelines that have been developed around an unhealthy population eating an unhealthy diet. And so when we yeah. look to those numbers and then we look to somebody who's eating a carnivore diet, we go, well, your numbers are very different. And, and you're thinking, well, I know that they are. And the reason that they're very different is because uh, I'm not eating all this other stuff. There's no, there's none of these processes that need to happen in my body to get rid of some of this stuff. And, yeah. and I think that's to your point with the, with the poisonous diet more than anything. Um, I once, I once heard it described as it's like, um, should you be putting flaxseed on your cereal? Well, I don't know, man, why don't you quit smoking first and we'll talk about it. And you know, it's the same kind of thing. It's like, well, let's go get this CAC test and look and look at the heart and, and see, is my heart healthy? Is it, is it damaged right here? Okay. Cause if it's not, then I don't know why we're having this conversation right now. Cause my heart's great. Yeah. And, and you've got to ask yourself, so, you know, if this test is cheap and easy to do and, and widely available, you know, why isn't it used more? And that's when you start getting into, you know, you you know, I, I've tried to figure that out and I've tried to come up with reasons why it's not used more. And, and in the end, the only reason you can come up with is because if it was used more, there would be a lot less people taking cholesterol lowering medications. Mm. Um you know, and it just, you know, like I said, I would love for someone else to come up with an explanation of why we don't use this test more. And no <laughs> one's ever been able to come up with another explanation for it. Uh, and, and those are the things that you start to see happening throughout medicine uh, that really, you know, really make you question things, really make you wonder, you know, I, and so you talked about other doctors and, you know, what, what kind of you know, support you get. Uh, so I've gone now to a number of uh, meetings, a number of low carb medical meetings. And, you have to meet uh, in the underground basement and meet in like well, dark shadows. 
<laughs> Needless to say, they're not sponsored by the uh, pharmaceutical industry, <laughs> um, you know, and is there um, a handshake? <laughs> well, you know, you have to know the secret password, but, uh, but uh, you know, what you find when you talk to the other physicians there are, you know, they pretty much all have the same story in that, you know, they came upon them, they came upon low carb, you know, looking to improve themselves. And then, you know, and then they, uh, you know, once they saw it, they couldn't unsee it and they had to start telling <laughs> patients and they had to start educating patients. And then you do see that there's a decent community, but it is still, you know, kind of underground because, uh, you know, this does go against a lot of the guidelines and a lot of the mainstream. And, and you know, for the most part, people still think it's, uh, you know, it, it's kind of crazy. And then if you're a doctor out there, uh, you know, there have been a few doctors who have gotten in trouble for talking about this. Uh, you know, there are a couple of doctors whose licenses have been threatened, uh, both in the U.S. and abroad. Uh, all of those cases have been unsuccessful in the end. And, uh, you know, because the science does support this, uh, it's just not the it, it just goes against the narrative. Uh, so, you know, like I said, it becomes hard to continue practicing in the same way. Uh, I've changed the way I practice. I've launched my own uh, online telehealth practice um, to start connecting with patients, uh, you know, and, and it, it unfortunately has to be sort of outside the system. You know, I don't take insurance uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's not mainstream, uh, but you know, it's something that I can do, uh, you know, like I said, once you see it, you can't unsee it. And I do whatever I can now to, you know, in the patients I operate on, you know, obviously heart surgery, I can't be doing, you know, on the side, uh, that's got to be done in a hospital and within a medical Listen, system. Listen, nothing, nothing but, uh, <laughs> yeah, st yeah, yeah, I got a stint, I got a stint right here. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> maybe, maybe you'll set me up, but, uh, but, uh, you know, but like I said, I, I try now to talk to the patients about this. I, I say, listen, you know, you, you've heard your whole life that, you know, you should be on a low fat diet. Uh, you may you a lot of them have done that. You know, a lot of them come to me and say, you know, that's what I've been doing. And, and yet here I am talking to you about having heart surgery and I've been taking my statin and my cholesterol level is 70, you know, is low. And yet, you know. I still am here with heart disease, you know, what happened? And, and again, that's what you've got to, you know, that, that's what my eyes finally got opened up to because the reality is those patients have always been there. And there were always these patients who, you know, uh, their cholesterol level would be normal and yet they had heart disease. And, you know, unfortunately up until a few years ago, it never really occurred to me to say why, you know, we just, in medicine, we tend to say, oh, well, it's an outlier, you know, it's a, it's the black swan. Uh, but going to these low carb meetings and talking to non physicians, you know, engineers and computer scientists, and, you know, they're the ones that have discovered a lot of this because they're the ones that looked at it and said, wait, if there's an exception to the rule, then the rule is wrong, you know, and, and what is the real rule? And, you know, they've taken a fresh look at the science, uh, you know, without the biases of, you know, having gone through medical school or, or been in the medical system for 20 years, uh, you know, like, like I have, you know, I had to overcome 
and unlearn a lot of stuff to get to where I am today. Uh, you know, and, and that's not easy. I mean, but, it, you know, that should be easier uh, to do, you know, because anyone who's, you know, the, the, the physician, uh, you know, the Latin root of the word uh, is educator, basically, you know, physicians should be teachers. You know, a physician shouldn't sit there and tell you what you should do. A physician should give you information to help you then decide, you know, what's best for you. And honestly, I, I, you know, this is something else I've come to realize. But, you know, my role as a doctor, you know, is not to tell you to take a medication. You know, my role as a doctor should be to present to you information and options and say, listen, you know, you're, you're concerned about heart disease or you have heart disease. You know, one option is take this medication and it's going to lower your cholesterol level and it may slightly reduce your risk of, you know, heart disease uh, and may, you know, but it's not going to extend your life. No statin has ever been shown to do that. Uh, and, you know, we can argue about w whether it's going to make your life any better. Maybe, maybe not. Um, or you can change the way you eat uh, and, you know, and feel better and look better and lose weight and, you know, and your cholesterol numbers are probably going to get overall better, but maybe not. But, you know, maybe that doesn't matter in the end. Uh, but, you know, we don't we don't give those options to patients anymore. You know, your typical visit with your doctor. Uh, and again, it's not the doctor's fault. It's the way the system is set up. Uh, but your typical visit is a 15 minute visit and you come in and you see the doctor and he looks at your lab work and he says your cholesterol is high and the guidelines say I should give you this medication. So here's your medication and, you know, I'll see you back in a few months and, and hopefully, you know, look, the number got better. So we must be doing something good. Uh, keep taking your medication. And, you know, you try and tell them, oh, but my muscles hurt and I'm getting diabetes and, you know, maybe this isn't working out so great for me. And the answer is, well, your cholesterol was high, so you need to keep taking this medication. You know, there's there's an interesting juxtaposition just in who you are as a guy right now, because my grandpa, my dad's dad was uh, among the first, I think, dozen people to have open heart surgery. And my aunt told me this story one time. She said she was sitting in the wind way between the garage and the house. And she saw my grandpa pull up in his car. My grandpa was a strong man, worked on a farm all through his childhood, ran orchards, worked at a steel plant full time, and then went and tended the orchards. He was just a hard ass working dude. And he pulled up in the car and he put his head against the steering wheel and he just started to weep because he was going in to tell his family that he's probably going to die and they were going to try this crazy thing on him to try to fix his heart. And he had, he'd had rheumatic fever as a kid and they hadn't caught it in time. And uh, it damaged his heart. Uh, you know, he had a murmur his whole life. They, they kept telling him he's going to die. And he outlived all of his siblings and everything. And he, he lived to be 85 years old. But a lot of that was some rough years. He's, he'd been through a lot and the body had taken its toll on things, you know, but 
on the one hand, I look at my grandfather as a great uh, role model and example of what it means to be a man and how to take care of a family and overcome a lot of things to be exactly the person and live exactly the life that you wanted to live. Uh, but on the other end of that coin, I look at my grandfather's end of life and it was miserable. And he was medicated constantly for pain, for the, you know, blood thinners and all kinds of stuff all the time, just pills after pills after pills. And it wreaked havoc on his mind and his body. And there's something you said that uh, kind of stuck with me, you know, that a, a physician is supposed to be a teacher. And one of the things that's amazing about what you do is you can go inside somebody's chest and teach your body how to not be dying for a while. But that can't be the only thing that a teacher teaches. That's an emergency. If the teacher teaches well, emergencies are a rare thing. If the teacher doesn't teach well, then the emergencies become the norm and people forget how uh, traumatic and atrocious uh, these things can be because everybody's having grandpa's got heart disease. And so I guess I I wonder if you think that the future of medicine is going to be less outside of the, the sort of academy and established order of medicine and it's going to migrate to different models like you're doing this online telehealth uh, or, you know, some sort of you and some other practitioners of whatever can make recommendations as a, like a holistic package of how to take care of yourself as a person. I, I you know, I, I see some of that and I'm interested in some of that. And I guess I just wonder after, after so many roadblocks and frustrations uh, and sort of having people have their livelihoods threatened because they have a, um, an experience that teaches them that maybe what they were teaching and being taught before wasn't accurate. How do you envision the future of the medical uh, professional world, you know, moving forward five, 10, 15, 20 years? Do you suppose it'll wither away or evolve or be replaced? Or how do you, how do you think that's going to unfurl? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, and I think medicine is, is a uh, snapshot of society. Uh, but I think we're at a point where, uh, you know, we, we clearly can't continue the way we're going. Uh, it's just not working for anyone. You know, the, uh, it's, it's too expensive. Uh, people aren't happy with the results. Uh, and it just, I don't see how it can continue uh, going, you know, down the road we're going. So we have to make some sort of change. Uh, and I'm hopeful that, you know, that change is, you know, I think, again, the power is in the people's hands uh, and it's in the patient's hands. And the patients have to stand up for themselves and start saying, no, I'm not going to just take this medicine. You know, I want to know what's causing my health problems and what can I do to fix it? And if the doctor, if the only answer that that doctor has for them is take this medicine, uh, you know, hopefully the people will start to say, you know, I need to find another doctor or I need to find, mm. you know, something outside the, the, the standard medical system. Uh, you know, uh, and, and uh, like I said, I mean, it just can't, you know, Hospitals, hospitals are on the precipice of not being able to, you know, function anymore. Uh, you know, you have hospitals that are, you know, understaffed, 
overloaded, uh, you know, and, and something like COVID, uh, you know, comes along and it really starts to expose, you know, the problems in our medical system. You know, when you look at, you know, and, you know, it, we don't need to get into the particulars of what's gone on with COVID, but when you look at it, you know, we're six months in, eight months in, you know, maybe longer, depending on what you believe, into this whole <laughs> COVID thing. And, you know, we supposedly, you know, we have the, the greatest medical system in the world, which I, I still do believe that the U.S., you know, uh, everyone argues about how good or bad it is. But the reality is, is that there are still way more people who come to the United States from everywhere else to get their health care than people that leave the United States to go anywhere else to get their health care. So I, I, I think that, you know, that speaks for the you know, the technological advancements that we've been able to make and, the you know, the, 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 you know, doctors, I believe are good people and they have, you know, they want to do good things. They're just in a broken system. Uh, and so I think between the patients and the doctors, uh, you know, the, the revolution is, is, is starting and we can take back control of medicine, you know, and, and that's the, that's, you know, the even bigger picture that I'm fighting for, you know, I'm passionate about nutrition and, uh, you know, and, and how nutrition can heal us. And I've, you know, like I said, launched my telehealth practice, uh, and, uh, you know, going at it that way. Uh, but ultimately what I want to fight for is that the doctors and the patients can work together to get back control of medicine. Cause right now medicine is controlled by, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, by the government, uh, and by the insurance industry. And, uh, it, it's just an out of control, uh, you know, medical administrators, you know, the, the hospital administrators, the insurance companies, uh, who really don't have any interest in, you know, what's best for the patient. They talk about it. They, they, you know, they, they, they act like they do, but in the end, they don't. Uh, and the only ones that have interest in what's best for the patient is number one, the patient, and then hopefully number two, that their doctor, uh, you know, is looking out for them. And ultimately, it's going to take physicians and patients working together to regain control of medicine and to fix this system, because otherwise, the system's not going to get fixed. There's a there's this interesting confluence of ideas and uh, practices and there's this uh, there's this vision I keep returning to and I've seen different manifestations out there businesses and things but we've come so far in say recovery exercise recovery science. And diet, I mean, if you if you actually pay attention to the research on the diet and you don't, if, if there's no sort of dogmatic or career-based attachment to, uh, you know, kowtowing to the, to the status quo, if you look at the research, it's, it's so in-depth and rich and there's so many surprises out there in the way that a human can be optimized. And this is true for things in the field of psychology, uh, in the field of movement, in the field of what's going on internally, diet. And I guess I just wonder, like a general practitioner, 
knows not very much about everything. And then they have, you know, and then they know what they know because of their experience. But you know what you know. You can operate on a heart, and that's something that very few people can do or will ever do. Um, and because you understand the heart and the field, you, your expertise is particularly uh, believable. You'd have high believability points. Um, but I guess I just, I'm, I'm wondering... Because you said you felt that there was a revolution brewing, both in terms of patients and in doctors. Uh, but one of the things that I, as a patient, let's say, as chance, because this is, this is the reality, is I have found a lot of human optimization tools um, that I feel like, after having used them, contribute more to my whole everything. When I'm mentally healthier, I'm physically healthier, I'm more robust. I, I, you know, I have more time because I'm not getting ill and I have a better attitude and I'm able to focus more. These kinds of things all contribute to all this stuff. And I guess I wonder, do you suppose that uh, medicine is really going to shift towards something more holistic as the norm within the confines or the frame of the current system? Because I'm kind of skeptical of that, to be honest. I'm I might be pushing back on that a bit, but I, 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 I guess I just wonder really if the whole apparatus will be able to be flexible enough to shift into a total new paradigm of taking care of the whole being in a, like a cohesive and long-term way rather than trying to find the cheapest temporary band-aid and making the most margins. And why do you think I'm wrong about that? I guess. Well, I, I, I think I think you're right in the sense that it has to look very different. And I think, um, you know, our current uh, it, it's almost like we're coming to a fork because, you know, our current medical system is designed to take care of sick people. And, you know, if you're very sick, you know, if you need heart surgery, yes, you want to be in a, you know, in a hospital in a United States hospital to do that, probably, you know, uh, I mean, there are plenty of good hospitals around the world, but, you know, for the most part, um, you know, I, I think your chances are a lot better in the United States than, than a lot of other places. Uh, you know, if you have a very complex medical problem that, that needs, you know, surgery or, or, you know, very complex medications. Um, but the flip side of that is, we should need a lot less of that as a society. And it, this is where the, you know, the kind of business model starts to fail uh, because if, you know, if people are right about the low carb diet, let's just say, you know, or diet in general without getting into a specific diet and we can make ourselves a lot healthier and we can prevent a lot of this disease by focusing on our diet, uh, then there's going to be a lot less need for hospitals, uh, mm. you know. So that that's where the system is going to have to, you know, redesign is going to have to be redesigned uh, to to accommodate that, uh, you know. And uh, again, I think you know my my personal goal as a as a patient, you know, not as a doctor, is to never yeah. be in the hospital, you know. I want to do everything I can to stay out of the hospital. You know, obviously I spend all my time professionally in hospitals, uh, but I, I honestly, if I can go my entire life and never be in the hospital, 
you know, that, that would be a success. Uh, you know, I want to, I want to stay healthy until the day I die. Uh, and I, that's the message I also want to give people that that's a realistic goal. You know, again, we, we <laughs> talked about it earlier, you know, we've lost sight of the fact that you can be healthy. You know, what does it mean to be healthy? Uh, you know, we think it is healthy to be on four or five medications by the time you're 50 years old. And everyone just accepts that because they look around them and everyone else is on four or five medications. Uh, but that, that shouldn't be, you know, we, we shouldn't need to be on medications. We should be able to get out of bed every morning and have energy and not have our joints hurt and, you know, not be tired by two o'clock in the afternoon uh, and need another snack. And, you know, uh, you know, our, our, you know, third, Starbucks of the day, you know, loaded with sugar and whatever else is in there. Uh, you know, like you said, the the Roman people rode the boats for days and days at a time without any food. Uh, you yeah. know, and, and uh, uh, we that that is what healthy should be. And, and you know, uh, like I said, you know, that that that's part of the message. It's just letting people know that that's an option because they don't even know it's an option anymore. And the system will have to redesign itself around that, you know, whether it's still our medical system, you know, whether it's still recognizable as our medical system, uh, you know, I'm not sure. I, I think, like I said, ultimately it becomes sort of a two pronged system, you know, one to deal with sick people and one to try and actually keep people healthy. Hmm. Okay. So when I, when I think about all of these things, you know, I think about how, um, there's, there's this long, there's this long game in, in this, uh, in, in this field, this health field in the same way that your life is long. It's like, a things, uh, things don't necessarily immediately change just because you changed one action one time, it sort of has to evolve over time. And I, I guess I wonder, you know, there's a lot of conversation about socializing medicine. And I sometimes, and, and one, of the, one of the arguments that it makes me pause at least to reflect is the idea that healthcare should be a right. And maybe there's an argument to be had around that. I'm not necessarily sure I agree, but one of the things I keep returning to in all of this is, well, the problem with that, as it stands right now in the United States, for example, is that the federal government subsidizes things like corn and soy um, and some of the, you know, the more poisonous aspects of the United States food supply is, you know, gets a break from Uncle Sam. And at the same time, the cabal of the big uh, pharmaceutical corporations, and I, I'm not saying it like they're malevolent, they're just businesses doing what businesses do, but they have lobbyists who speak to Washington and there's a lot of money involved and Washington um, has a glass door with a lot of places and the pharmaceutical industry is one of them. And so the, the, the thing is, if you want to have universal health care, it's like, well, maybe, but 
we can't be having the same people who are going to be subsidizing our poison be subsidizing uh, the like long con of treating us with more poisons to combat the effects of the other poisons. You, if we're going to, you know, if we really want to have this conversation, it's like, okay, but you have to be healthy. And how do you do that? You, you, you try to not eat poison. Number one, that's the number one rule. Don't poison yourself with stuff you know is poisonous. And everybody knows that everybody knows it's Twinkie shouldn't be eaten. Everybody knows you go buy a cheese. It's like, Oh, it's whole grains. It's like, no, nah, man, it's, it's a bunch of processed crap. And especially some of these wackadoo, you know, candies or weird crap they have out there. It's like, what is, why is flaming Hot everything a thing now? It's flaming Hot everything. Just stop eating poison for the most part. Have a little poison every once in a while even, but just take the poison out of your daily routine. You're going to feel a lot better. And then go, okay, I'm going to try to eat a certain way. And I'm going to try this exercise. And I'm going to say three months to try it for real. Because I care about my health and I care about my body and my longevity. And I don't want to, I don't want to be like grandpa and be sick for 15 years. Uh, and so you try and it's like, man, I feel great. <laughs> this is great. It's way better than the life I had before. And the thing is, everybody who listens to this podcast for sure knows this. Intuitively, a lot of them have experience doing stuff like this. And most of them know from watching the people around them that it's like, okay, if you, if you just take care of yourself and you try a little bit and pay attention, you're going to be great in all aspects of your life. It doesn't really take that much unless you want to be in the halls of greatness. If you just want to have a pretty awesome life, there's not a lot being asked of you. But number one thing you have to ask yourself is to take care of your meat machine. Because if you're in agony for the last 20 years of your life because your back's jacked and you're taking all kinds of pills and you're spaced out because you, you're on methadone from the addiction that you had to Oxycontin and you're on blood thinners that make you pee every, you know, 45 minutes on the hour, even at night. And you are on antidepressants because you're feeling real bad from taking the opiates for the last 15 years. Does that, <clears throat> is that what you want? And is that what you want to put your loved ones through? And is that what you want to tax this, the system, the medical system and the political system and the financial system? Because you brought it up before obesity. I've, I've done some writing about this on Twitter and it pisses people off because it's just like, look, man, there's nothing more expensive at all than this. What, what you eat is the most expensive, most common, most easy to cure disease out there. And it's a disease that 95% of the people in the Western world have right now is the disease of what do I shove in my face? And there's, it's the, it's the easy answer. Don't do the stuff that makes you fat and feel bad. <laughs> so I what I would like, cause we've talked about a lot of different things and I want to leave people with something um, that they can take with them. They can use and they can frame it. So what I want to do is just to imagine that there's somebody in front of you. And they're like, look, Doc, um, I'm on board with what you're saying. I, I know I got some pounds to lose. I know I don't feel that good. Uh, you know, I know I've been on this, uh, this like a Fegzer. My mom put me on when I was in high school. I've just been taking it ever since, you know, I, but I just know that I'd want to feel different and I don't mind a steak, you know, I don't mind some butter, uh, but, but are you, you know, like, what should I do? Where can I start? What are if I was going to start right now doing this and I was like, 
some barely motivated, flabby, ill person. Maybe it's not their fault. Maybe it is. I'm just saying this is the person. And they're like, what do I do right now to start? Do I need to phase in? Is there any, uh, is there any like magic pill I can take that'll make this easy? Okay, should I write post-it notes on my mirror? And, and you know, what, it, what does the person do to start right now to really begin to experience this uh, metamorphosis into a totally different person in a lot of ways? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, the, the, the first thing I would tell people is, you know, demand to be healthy. Uh, you know, so when you go to the doctor, don't accept that, you know, just take this medication. Say, no, I want to understand why I don't feel the way I want to feel. And I, I demand to be healthy, you know, help me figure out how to be healthy. And if that doctor can't do it, go find another doctor that can. Um, and, you know, the number one rule, you know, to being healthy, I tell people is to eat real food. Uh, you know, if it has more than you know, probably if it has more than three ingredients, it's not something you should be eating. And certainly if you don't recognize what those ingredients are, uh, you know, I, I tell people, you know, 99% of the supermarket does not contain food. The only parts of the supermarket that contain food are usually the outside, you know, you go to the produce counter, you go to the meat counter, you go to the seafood counter, and you go to the dairy, uh, uh, you know, uh, cabinet and you only get the real dairy from there, you know, anything that says low fat, you know, whatever, you know, just go get real, real milk, real butter, uh, you know, real yogurt and, uh, you know, and some real cheese and, and you're fine. Uh, but yeah, just eat real food, uh, and avoid, uh, avoid anything that didn't exist more than a hundred years ago, uh, in your food. I think it's probably the, the best rule to go by, you know, any fake oil, uh, any processed sugar ingredient, you know, uh, real sugar is probably fine in limited quantities, but you know, all this fake sugar, all these sugar substitutes, uh, I don't think any of them are good to use. Um, you know, I think if you're going to, if you need something, you know, I'd, I'd rather see you eat a little bit of real sugar than a lot of the fake stuff, you know. Uh, the other rule I tell people is, you know, don't drink calories, you know. Calorie, you know, uh, really the only things we should be drinking are water, uh, you know, black coffee, tea, uh, is probably the only thing that any of us should be drinking, you know, and maybe, maybe some milk. I'm not even so sure about that, but fruit juices, shouldn't be drank, uh, you know, and then adding stuff to, you know, the above, you know, you know, putting a whole bunch of sugar and, and, uh, you know, sweeteners in your coffee isn't, isn't helping anyone. So, you know, like I said, it comes down to demand to be healthy, eat real food, and then, uh, you know, stay active. Uh, you know, you, you don't need to go to the gym three hours a day uh and be on a treadmill uh you know you don't need to be into heavy weightlifting. you know if you want to be i'm not saying there's anything wrong with it but it's not a necessity to be healthy you know if you're just oh i disagree be... <laughs> i disagree 
<laughs> you, you you try you know i mean simple things in terms of activity you know don't, don't take the elevator take the stairs you know get get out for a walk you know in the evening or in the morning you know grab your kids grab your dog grab your wife whatever it is you know and and just go take a 15 minute walk you know get out in the sun is one of the other you know big mistakes we've made and and we certainly didn't touch on this but you know the fact that we hide from the sun and, you know, is, is one of the other things that is, you know, doing great harm to our health. You know, yeah. again, we, we evolved in the sun. There's no reason to think that the sun is, is what's killing us. Um, uh, so, you know, it, it's simple things like that. But like I said, number one is you, you got to demand to be healthy. You know, you got to want to be healthy and you got to demand to be healthy. And then the information's out there, you know, people could certainly come, you know, sign up with me at, you know, ovadiaheartthealth.com. I'm more than happy to, you know, to, to work with people. Um, but, but, you know, I'll also tell you the information's out there. Uh, you know, if you go looking for it, there's plenty of information out there. And uh, like I said, just if you stick to real food, because people always say, oh, well, you know, then I get online and I start searching and I come across all these you know, diets and how do you know what's good and how do you know what's not good? And, you know, if they're telling you to eat real food, you're going to be fine, you know, in the end. And I, like I said, my personal preference, and I think the data supports is that should be mostly animal-based food. Uh, but, you know, uh, if you're mixing in a little bit of, of plant uh, kingdom food, uh, I, I think that's fine. Just uh, keep it to real food. So, you know, it always, or at least it used to always surprise me. I guess it doesn't any longer, but it still, it still piques my interest. I've had, this may, this may be the, you might be my 130th guest or something like that. And I've asked some sort of question similar to that of almost all my guests. And the answer is no matter how super genius the person is or how successful they are in their career or, you know, how esoteric the conversation was or whatever. When they get to the point where I ask them what they tell somebody to do, it's always very simple stuff. It's, you know, it's eat right and exercise. It's take care of your money and it's have a goal and act to get it done. You know, it's always stuff like that. And people hear that and they go, that is exactly right. <laughs> and I, you know, man, I, I guess what I'm saying is, I had a lot of fun picking your brain about this stuff and um, getting to know you a little better, you know, frankly, but I, I guess I just wonder why, why is that 80%, 90% of stuff before you that's just the obvious low hanging stuff? Why do you suppose that's the stuff that people will go through great efforts and leap through hoops to avoid picking the low hanging fruit of, uh, you know, any sort of improvement mechanism. It's like eat right and exercise and take good care of your money and don't have too much debt or any preferably. And, you know, know what you're talking about by reading stuff. Uh, what do you suppose is the barrier to that? I, I guess maybe, maybe let's leave it with sort of your philosophical musings on this and we can then we can wrap it up. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I would say, I guess, you know, we, we've made it, 
we've made it so complicated and they're, uh, you know, uh, the incentives have become such that, you know, uh, it, it's kind of become incentivized to make it complicated and then try and come up with solutions to the complications that we cause ourselves uh, instead of stepping back and saying, you know, what got us here in the first place? Like I said, you know, in medicine, you know, that's, you know, instead of saying, why are we so sick? We just are always searching for the next, you know, miracle medication to to cure ourselves. And it's been in front of our eyes the whole time, you know, and it's real food. And that's it. <laughs> it's been there. <laughs> but, you know, it, that, 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 you know, the, the system is set up in such a way that, you know, that's too simple. It, it can't be that simple, you know. Uh, and maybe it comes down to, you know, we don't want to believe, um, you know, we don't want to make ourselves look foolish, I guess, because, you know, if you spent your whole life doing something else and then, you know, the answer is really that simple and you're like, well, then, you know, how did I waste my whole life up until this point not knowing this simple thing or not doing this simple thing? Uh, yeah. But again, it's not our, you know, it, it, I, it's not people's fault. Uh, the messaging, the you know, they're so surrounded by the complexity anymore that it becomes hard to see the simple things. And I think that's hmm. what it comes down to. Yeah, well, well, look, it, you know, we've talked a lot about how to, the, you know, there's always principles beneath these conversations. And on the one hand, we've talked about these different styles of diets, but on the other hand, we've talked about some deeper things about maybe um, not tacitly agreeing to anything that comes down to you from a position of uh, ostensible authority. And maybe even sometimes the authority has to um, have a little self-reflection and go, am I correct here? Am I, am I still the authority? And we've talked about a growing movement of red pill doctors and professionals meeting in underground meetings, trying to plan the resurgence of, uh, sense-making diet advice and i guess uh is there anything you feel like you want to leave them with or that we haven't touched on before we uh wrap this very interesting and far-ranging conversation up no i think we've you know certainly touched on it pretty well and i'll, I'll just say you know if you when you when you i, I guess when you are willing to start that journey to improve your health, you're going to find that your entire life improves. Uh, I don't think it's possible to become healthier and not become a better person all around. Mm. Uh, and I know for me personally, you know, when, when I finally was able to focus on improving my health and I had my eyes opened as to what it took to get healthy, um, it's led to my eyes opening, you know, my eyes being open to a lot of the things that are going on in this world. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's improved my physical health. It's improved my mental health. Uh, and I didn't, honestly, I didn't think I had a problem with my mental health before, but, you know, I came to realize, you know, how, how stressful being unhealthy is, uh, mm. and, and, uh, you know, how much, you know, just how much pressure that puts on everyone to, to, you know, maintaining an unhealthy lifestyle in the end is a lot harder than maintaining a healthy lifestyle. 
You know, everyone thinks it's hard to be healthy, but you know, in the end, I can tell you, having gone through the journey, that you know, it was much harder to maintain being unhealthy than to be healthy. Uh, yeah. You know, and and it's, it's just it's freed my mind now to, you know, to be able to think about a lot of other things, uh, and to you know, uh, you know, open my eyes to a lot of the things that are going on in this world that you know are just. There, there are such parallels between, you know, what goes on in medicine and what goes on in the rest of the world uh, that, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and maybe we save that for uh, for podcast number two. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> we'll have to ask permission to take three hours of people's time to even just scratch the surface on that. Yeah, on that exactly. exactly. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I I try to tell people to to stop making their problems special and make their solutions special. You know, it's like a, it's not, I, your problems aren't what make you interesting. It's how you deal with them that makes you interesting and who you are. And you, you know, 90% of you out there, America, are you out there? You have this thing that's in front of you all the time. And, and just like the good doc said, it's stressful being unhealthy. You don't feel good. And he talked about how it's hard to be healthy. It's hard to be healthy. But if you are healthy, you think, oh, yeah, gee, it's real hard to walk around feeling great all the time. That's hard. It's hard to, like, just not eat Cheetos and eat a good steak and feel great and just feel awesome and look great and feel good about how I feel and have more focus and energy and mental clarity. Yeah, that's hard. And, and so, you know, but making a change is hard. There are things you can do that make it less hard, but it is hard. But the hard things are the ones with the most dividends. And I'm, I'm here to say it. You're here to say it. There are millions of people out there who have gone through a journey of being not well to being well. And they've gone their different paths. And I would never, I'm not one to tell people they got to do things a certain way. Just don't mess with me and mine and do what you're going to do and see how it goes for you. If you want some help, I'll help you if I can. But, you know, look, do you really want to be a slob? Do you really want to be dying? Do you really want to put that pressure on yourself and the people who love you? Because I have people in my life who are obese and I look at them and I love them and it makes me feel bad because I think you're not healthy. You're way unhealthy, in fact, and you're going to the doctor all the time and you're probably going to die soon. And that makes me feel bad. But that's just the reality. You can't be 150 pounds overweight and not be getting ready to have some serious issues. And so I guess I'm just trying to hammer home the message here because it's a simple one. It's just take care of yourself in the most basic ways possible and you'll be almost all the way there. You won't have to do almost anything besides eat right and get a little exercise. And that's like it. <laughs> to start to get you 90% of the way, you could travel with that. So just do that. Just do that. Just go eat some food and get a little exercise. And so, okay, that I'm, I'm going to cut my ramble off there. Uh, why don't you tell the folks where they can find you uh, on Twitter? Tell them your website again, um, and then we can uh, we can sign off. Sounds good, and and thanks again for this uh, conversation, Chance. It's really been a pleasure. Uh, so you can find me uh, ovadiahearthealth.com, uh, O-V-A-D-I-A hearthealth.com, and then on Twitter I'm at ifixhearts. Uh, one word, and 
those are the main uh, those are the main places I hang out in the digital world. So come uh, come interact with me there, and I, I love to uh, you know continue this conversation with as many people as possible. Well, uh, and I hope I hope they take you up on that. And I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and uh, explain some of these things and talk about some of these things with me. Um, and uh, yeah, let's do it again sometime. If you're into it, we'll uh, we'll work it out down the road. Sounds good. Thanks, Chance. Okay, well, yeah, if you're good, I'm good then. I'm good. In that case, this has been the Logos and Trivical podcast. I've been Chance Lunsford. He's been Dr. Philip Ovedia. This has all been Allegedly, and we are out. Now we are. <laughs>